You are listening to the INCJ podcast, conversations about international criminal justice. Okay, welcome everybody to our uh, INCJ event this afternoon. And INCJ is the International Network for Criminal Justice. And we were set up in the last a uh, couple of years out of De Montfort University, for those of you who don't know. But even though we developed out of De Montfort, uh, we have representatives involved in the network now from at least uh, nine, if not 10 universities right around the world, from the United States, Australia, uh, Nigeria, uh, and various parts of Europe. So our purpose is to provide an international development resource network for academics, researchers, professionals, practitioners, and policymakers. Um, just for those of you who uh, don't know me, I'm Vivian Gearan, and I'm, uh, I, I was previously the director of the Irish Probation Service for seven years. I finished up in that role at the end of 2019, and since then, I've been an adjunct assistant professor in the School of Social Work and Social Policy in Trinity College. Dublin. And uh, as well as that, I've, I've various other involvements, but one that's relevant for today to some extent is I'm a member of the Council of Europe's Council for Penological Cooperation, and perhaps a little bit more about that uh, later on. So just to say how things will run from a practical point of view this afternoon, uh, I, I will shortly just uh, very briefly introduce our three main contributors uh, this afternoon to the conversation, um, which is about ICT in probation and uh, prisons work. And then I will hand over to Rob Watson, who will explain briefly a little more about how the meeting or the discussion, the conversation will run uh, and where, where you know, what the theory is, if you like, behind this this type of an event and why it's different to other types of forms of online discussion and meeting and uh, various types of webinars and so on. And then I'll come back uh, and I will ask our three contributors to uh, say a little bit more about themselves, their work, their research and other interests, and we'll take the conversation on from there. Just very briefly, then to mention who our three uh, primary contributors are, and in saying that, hopefully, as the afternoon progresses over the next hour or so, uh, other people currently or shortly uh, attending the conversation will have a chance to contribute. But as I say, the, the main contributors to the conversation, based on their various uh, types of experience and expertise in the area of ICT and corrections are uh, Pia Puolaka, who works with the Criminal Sanctions Agency in Finland, and uh, she's also part of the SMART uh, prison project. Then we will have Matt Rowland, uh, who's a principal at Maloney, Rowland and Associates uh, in the Washington, uh, D.C. area. And finally, then we have Stephen van der Steen, uh, who is with uh, Technology for Corrections uh, as a consultant and uh, works with Smart Corrections uh, also. So uh, 
without any further ado, I'll ask each each of those three contributors to uh, introduce themselves. Just first of all, to say that for uh, for the present, if people could keep their cameras and microphones off, as uh, I can see you've already been doing. If you have any questions or comments as we go along uh, in the early stages or at any stage of the conversation, you might put those into the chat area on the screen. Um, and then later on, or as we, as we go on, we'll have a chance to respond to those comments or questions and involve uh, people as they wish to come in later on in the conversation. Okay, so maybe I'll, I'll start off by inviting Pia now just to say a little bit about herself and her background and her research and other interests. Pia. Okay, thank you. I hope you hear me finally. I had some problems. Uh, my name is Pia Puolakka. I'm from Finland. I work in the Criminal Sanctions Agency in the Central Administration Unit in Helsinki. Uh, I'm a forensic psychologist and psychotherapist and also project manager in the Smart Prison project, as Vivian uh, told. Smart Prison project is about developing digital services for, for inmates and also probations. And then I'm also involved in our first artificial intelligence uh, project, which is for our new offender management system. And last year, Finland's uh, first smart prison opened uh, a new women's prison with, with cell devices. So this is my background very shortly. Okay, thanks very much, Pia. And of course, I just want to add that uh, Pia is one of the speakers that I, uh, who I do know because she's involved in a project with the Council of Europe on uh, exploring issues and developing standards in relation to artificial intelligence and other technologies in prisons and uh, uh, probation services. Okay, the next person beside Pia on my screen is Matt Rowland. Matt, would you like to say a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure, Vivian. Um, I've worked in criminal justice here in the United States for more than 30 years now. I started out as a probation and parole officer in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I worked my way through uh, following the Peter Principle and eventually took over a position similar to you. Uh, I was the senior executive for the federal probation and pretrial services system. And what was great about that is uh, we have a presence, obviously, in all 50 states, as well as the uh, the protectorates in Guam and Puerto Rico and, and places like that. Uh, 8,000 dedicated professionals uh, working with about 200,000 court-involved persons every year. So very diverse, uh, really interesting. And I enjoyed that work. And I retired about the same time that you did. Uh, since then, I've been doing consulting work um, in various capacities and training and, and uh, strategic planning. But my real passion has been um, how to leverage these new and emerging technologies, including artificial intelligence, to better achieve the missions of both uh, institutional corrections and community corrections. Okay, thank you very much, Matt. Um, lots to look forward to hear about there. Uh, and finally, Stephen, will you say a little bit about your background and yourself? Yes, yeah, sure, Vivian, thank you. Um, yes, I uh, work in the correctional uh, um, and the justice sector since 1999, and I started uh, similar like Matt as probation officer. Uh, but I moved into the organization and studied uh, uh, ICT. Uh, so I, I became an enterprise architect. I moved to the organization and became the CIO of the Belgian Prison Service. So I have both 
probation and the prison uh, background, uh, and also both the, the social sciences and the IT uh, background. And I tried to combine, combine those two. Uh, and since 2015, I, I work as a consultant uh, and also part-time as a researcher affiliated to Montfort University, mainly together with Dr. Victoria Knight, on different topics related to the use of technology in, in, in corrections. Uh, so we have done some work on, on, on uh, non-coding research on, on the digital maturity of correctional organizations. Uh, we have done some work on, on the ethics of using technology in, 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 uh, in corrections. And I'm also a, a member of the board of directors of the International Corrections and Prisons Association. So um, uh, I'm very uh, um, active uh, in, in a lot of international uh, projects uh, uh, related to, to uh, embedding technology in, in their uh, organizations. Okay, thank you very much too, uh, Stephen. So between our three um, conversationalists, we have a lot of uh, experience in different areas, a lot of overlaps as well. And um, just to reiterate, in terms of the, the timing, I'm, I'm expecting that, that the, the event today, the, the discussion, um, will go on for about um, an hour or so. Um, and, uh, but we're, we're fairly flexible on that. So it's, it's not like we're stuck to a rigid uh, time frame or time scale. Just before I move on to the... Um, questions if you like or some some of the opening questions that were that we're going to talk about is there anything you want to add rob at this stage in relation to how how things will roll no i think i think you just uh, wanted me to kind of outline what our thinking is on yeah. on the kind of process if you like for uh, a deliberative conversation uh, which is really important uh, rather than this being presentations where we're talking at and presenting you know inf established information that this is an opportunity to to do our thinking out loud and to share our developmental ideas and emergent ideas because that's often the hardest um thing to find a place uh, for uh, most of you know, professionally most of us are in a situation where we will uh, uh have have finished a project before we think it's ready to to offer to the world and actually having these kind of inclusive conversations that we can record and and go back to and listen back to and mine for for things which are kind of intangible uh elements uh that come from our um you know from the from the from the practice and from our our half formed reflection so i think that uh, something like using teleconferencing and zoom and teams and things is a really great way of giving us an opportunity to put those thoughts into some kind of a dialogue uh, which is can we can look back on and i have a, a you know a motto at the moment is don't leave a good conversation in the room uh, if there's if there's unless there's a good reason not to uh, then you know get it out into the public domain because it is fascinating and interesting and I, I always get engrossed with these conversations uh, and and find the learning that takes place from hearing that dialogue from people with that experience wisdom and expertise is invaluable so okay thanks very much rob uh, very well put as always i'm thinking i'm reminded of the three d's that you've mentioned uh, dialogue that's deliberative and don't leave the conversation in the room, uh, which are, are really three important things to remember. And I should say as well that in the, in the wider context of the International Network on Criminal Justice, INCJ, over the course of our work in the, in the last year or so, 
uh, we identified three general areas of focus that we wanted to uh, zoom in on. And one of those was skills development and training. Uh, one of the other ones was co- uh, organizational culture. And the finally, uh, finally, there was uh, the whole area of ICT, which is the, is the area that I've, uh, I've taken on to convene. So w- we do see this whole process, not, not just today, as being deliberative in the context of developing opportunities uh, for collaboration, information sharing, networking, research possibilities, and uh, so on. So in, the, in that context, then, I want to come back to our three uh, contributors, uh, Matt, Pia, and Stephen, and maybe just start by putting the question that everybody, all of you, will, will have seen in the blurb uh, in relation to what is the impact of ICT on the work of probation and prison services, and how have these been intensified by the impact of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic? So... Pia, maybe I'll, I'll start with with you uh, if if you have any thoughts. I'm 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 conscious myself in the Irish context that everybody in every sector is saying that COVID has changed a lot. We've beco- we've 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 uh, started, if not developed, uh, a greater dependency on ICT to uh, help us to to manage things, and that's tr- uh, true in the whole corrections area. So, Pia, any thoughts on that? Uh, I think at least in in Finland it uh, changed a lot the situation because when we started with the Smart Prison project in 2018 we were very much in the beginning of digitalization and it was considered something extra and then when covid came uh, 2020 we first thought it's a catastrophe to the project that we will have this kind of uh, impossible situation but in the end, it turned out uh, to be our benefit because it uh, really proved that we need uh, digital services. And, and for a couple of years, we were very, very dependent on them. And at the moment, it doesn't seem like it would be decreasing now that the COVID is, is pretty much over. But uh, we've stayed on the level of using, using a lot of digital services, especially video calls. So many of our uh, partners and, of course, inmates, relatives uh, are using are using these systems a lot. Uh, prisoners take their uh, school by by video conference devices, and uh, many many organizations do rehabilitative work uh, by using uh, digital platforms or, or video calls. So. Um, I think it has changed a lot. And of course, with the smart prison, also staff's workloads and uh, processes have become more digitalized uh, inside, in inside prison communication too. And uh, also video calls for healthcare purposes uh, have increased because prisoners can now consult also these services online. So... It has changed a lot, and I, I think it will stay on a high level from now on. Yeah, and that- also because we are uh, extending the smart prison system. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very much struck by the point you made, uh, to paraphrase what you said, that there's no going back, you know, that the, the practices taken on 
by the correction service because of the pandemic will continue uh, and perhaps even be built on as as time goes on. Uh, Matt, do you want to take that up um, in terms of the general question or, or anything from what Pia has said that might resonate for you? I do. And, and thinking about what just Pia said, for me, I don't know how much the pandemic has created new trends as opposed to accelerated them. For example, we were talking about remote work uh, globally and in community corrections as well. Um, telemedicine was just starting out. It just seems that the evolution because of the pandemic was sped up. And I agree with Pia 100%. I don't think we're going back. I think the question is, how do we maximize the benefits of this electronic world we're living in? And how do we minimize the negatives? Um, we were joking before we went on live about uh, going back to conferences in person again and the value of that. But at the same time, I would not be having this conversation with you if it weren't for the electronic media that now is commonplace. Um, and we're all, we're all over the globe talking to one another, which is fantastic. So for me, I think, um, again, it was just solidifying trends that were already existing. And again, the benefits of those and the challenges. And one of the challenges that comes to mind for me is that blurring between work and home. Uh, we always had that problem, particularly in community corrections, where officers were expected to be accessible more and more often to the people under supervision. Uh, so the traditional work hours were going out the window. Now, um, with the expectation that you're available for these types of conversations and training events, and um, that that line between work and home has gotten blurred. And how are we going to manage that long term to prevent people from being burnt out and getting the benefits of training that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten? So for me, that's going to be the interesting thing moving forward. Okay, thanks very much, Matt. And any any thoughts in terms of the general question or what Matt and Pia have now said, Stephen, for you? Yeah, I I, I have to agree with with, with both uh, Pia and Matthew, and, and and I just want to pick up on what 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 Matt has said about uh, finding that balance. Uh, so so trying to find uh, uh, um, how technology can even be improved uh, uh, or used to improve our organizations, but at the same time be very uh, uh, careful of not creating negative side effects of using that. So I, I, I see uh, indeed yeah, that acceleration, not only on the, on the use or the adoption of technology, but also, uh, and I, I, I think it's really positive, also the conversation about technology. Eh? I, 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 it's almost like, like COVID has, has, has put the conversation uh, outside the, the desk of, of the ICT uh, department, inside the entire organization and the entire broader ecosystem of corrections. So I, I think it's, it's very important that this conversations uh, are, are ongoing because uh, it's it's it's, uh, it's it's very important. I see a lot of organizations today uh, uh, starting to evaluate uh, the, the the technology as such. Often, uh, what they have sometimes quick and dirty installed in in their in their administrations, uh, um, and and what what can can it be improved? Uh, how to do it? Uh, has it has it changed uh, uh, things from positive? Has it changed also the negative consequences? Things like that. So, so yeah, this, this is happening now. Uh, and, and at the same time, I see uh, a lot of uh, organizations um, uh, yeah, asking for, for help and, 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 and uh, from, from all other partners and, and international uh, organizations to, 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 to help their, their thinking on this. So I, I really think this, this kind of conversation is very valuable uh, uh, for, for everyone. 
And just picking up on one of the, I mean, even so far, uh, um, a lot of issues are beginning to emerge, but just picking up on one that, uh, that Matt referenced, how to maximize the benefits and minimize the dangers. Uh, dangers may not be the right word or maybe over dramatic, but you know what I mean, how to, how to maximize the benefits that we've begun to see as a result of the acceleration in the use of IT over the course of the pandemic and reduce the downside, if I can call it, call it that, that. Does anybody have any sense of how collectively or individually or organizationally we can do that? How can we maximize those benefits? How can we put appropriate uh, protections in place so as to ensure that the downsides aren't dominant? Matt, PR, Stephen, anybody? Matt, I see you. Yeah, I don't know if it helps, but for me, I think even what we're having now the, that we're having conversations on the front end and we're being deliberative. Um, and if we share the experiences, for example, uh, telemedicine, uh, when is that appropriate? Um, when is it not? Uh, who is it working for? We're only going to be able to figure that out. We can't do it on the front end. I think to some degree we have to experiment and we have to follow results and try to identify in what situations is telemedicine the optimal uh, option for people to use? Whereas in some cases, where do you need face-to-face interactions? Uh, what I'm fascinated by with things like telemedicine or even just tele-interventions generally, um, you can now match up uh, probation officers, for example, with special skill sets that may be hundreds or thousands of miles away from where the client resides. Uh, so you can now do better matching of risks and needs with the resources and skill sets of staff uh, in the federal probation system that I was part of. Again, we covered the whole country. We had some experts in, in areas that were very nuanced, but sometimes it was hard to leverage those skill sets because they were remote or their clients that could best benefit were nowhere nearby. Telemedicine maybe the or tele-intervention may be the way to deal with that. So I don't think we're going to be able to figure it out on the front end. I think we have to come up with safeguards where we're communicating with one another, we're sharing results uh, collectively, because for the most part, while there's jurisdictional differences, we're dealing with humans and human behavior. And those are universals. And that's the advantage of, of the organization you put together in, in this conversation here, because there's universal lessons, I think, that can be learned as we move along. One of the one of the, the themes that you've kind of touched on without using the words there, Matt, is the whole area of artificial intelligence. That's what comes across to me in what you've described about potential benefits of matching probation officers to uh, clients with particular risks and needs. Um, in the context of AI, then, Pia, do you want to come in and say anything about uh, what Matt has been describing in the context of the work you're doing in the area of AI for the Council of Europe and more widely? Yeah, first I was uh, uh, about to say that uh, it's uh, easy to see, at least in Finland, when we have the smart prison that digitalizing some client processes and staff workflows is definitely cost effective. But then, of course, again, people crave for face-to-face contact. And in Finnish uh, uh, prison work, it's uh, it's very important uh, that prison officers stay in contact to prisoners. It's effective and 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 it's uh, it's uh, preventive also. 
but but of course uh, some processes uh, are important um, or I think very beneficial to digitalize and also automate it as is the idea of using AI and I see a lot of potential there and there's a lot of discussion going on of course there's ethical questions so for example automated decision making is not what we are looking for but we are looking for AI that would uh, speed speed up our processes and be a kind of a tool uh, for people who, for example, analyze um, inmate informations or uh, uh, try to make sentence plans for prisoners or find the best uh, suitable services for prisoners or the best suitable unit for a prisoner to be placed. So this is, for example, the idea in our AI project that it would be a, a helpful tool for offender management uh, without being automated decision-making. So uh, AI is never doing the whole uh, job, but uh, giving, giving uh, important information and then the expert analysis by humans is, is then the, in any way, uh, what decides what, what's going to be done. That's a and fascinating same point, yeah. yeah, yeah. And same discussion is in the Council of Europe work that we are doing now with, uh, uh, in collaboration with, uh, with my Swedish colleague and my colleague from uh, Spain. So we are trying to think about these, these issues there. Yeah, so it seems to me, Pia, what you're saying is that while the technology, the artificial intelligence brings a whole lot of benefits that at some level, human beings don't necessarily have the capability to generate, but that we shouldn't yeah. hand over the whole process to the machinery, to the um, algorithms or whatever, that there's a need for a human expertise that needs to develop alongside. Am I, am I, am I saying that correctly? Or? Yes, yeah. correct. Mm. Yeah. Stephen, do you want to come in on any of those points? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let, let's begin on artificial intelligence. I, I, I have done some work with Pia on this also uh, a couple of months ago. Um, yeah, it's 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 really in, uh, important to look at at uh, um, AI and 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 my part other technology uh, in the specific context uh, where it's used because context is everything uh, and it's 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 away from the technology as such. Eh? So so. It's very important uh, to to avoid black and white discussions about technology in general because it, in general it, it's impossible to have that conversation. As Pia mentioned, uh, if you develop, uh, use AI for that development to to help uh, uh, making some decisions of giving your advice, you have to be sure that it stays like like in used by where it has been designed for eh? so so that it's just an advisory tool eh? that it doesn't take over your decision and especially not what we have seen in, in, in some technologies uh, uh, that it, it, it starts uh, being like the holy grail and that the, the, the machine starts making the decision so that's that's a really important one eh? so uh, and it's about the context it's also about other technologies like communication technologies uh, for example uh, video visits has been of video conferencing systems for, for, for supporting prisons has been very popular and very beneficial during the pandemic. But we should avoid that it replaces the, 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 the physical ones. Mm -hmm. eh? So that's, that, that's very important because the physical contact and face-to-face and, and -face contact is, is very valuable. Uh, so this, this, this kind of example are, are very, very important. And maybe a last example I, I, I can give on this 
that the context is very important is that technology has, has, has the capabilities to make better what it's good, but also to make worse what it's not very good. Eh? So to give you a simple example, and uh, uh, in Belgium we installed uh, a couple of years already ago a self-surfacing uh, system uh, in, in, in one prison, and some academic research has been done. And, and, and the first outcomes was that, that in one wing where there is a very closed regime, uh, there's a kind of negative in, impact enforcing isolation of those people who were already sitting like much more hours on their cells and had less contact with other inmates and things like that, a much stricter regime. Why in the same prison, in another wing, which has a much more open regime, it, it, the results were that it like created even more openness and, and more it was really beneficial for, for, for enhancing uh, conversations and, and education. And then, so they just the same piece of technology in the same prison, just two different wings with different regimes. So context is so important and technology is, is as, as such quite neutral until you apply it. Eh? So, so we know that statement, but I think it's very valuable. Yeah, I think that they're really important points, uh, Stephen, um, and a lot of a lot of quotable quotes there. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm just going to move over to some of the comments from some of the uh, others, uh, other people participating in today's event, um, just while I can, and while the questions or comments are there. Simon asks, do the panelists think? that there is a risk to revert back to a pre-COVID reality. There was a lot of investment during COVID. Is that sustainable in the economic reality post-COVID, not to mention cultural challenges related to change management? Anybody want to respond to that question from Simon, the danger of or the risk of reverting back to pre-COVID reality mm -hmm. and the economic issues? Stephen, you're putting your hand up. Yeah, I, I think there is a valid point that, that there, uh, there, there is a risk to having some, some going back points eh? uh, uh, related to the economic situation, related to the effort of investing in technology, for example. Uh, I don't believe that it will be back to what it was before, but there will be some, and, and I already see this in some jurisdictions, some, some, some blocking elements to, 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 to go further with, with technology. Some can be the economical thing. Uh, some is also uh, uh, other problems, for example, related to, to recruitment of staff, uh, related to, to, to legislation that, that was just like uh, not ready to, to cope with, with, with changing impact. So I think it's, it's got to be different. Uh, it, there can be some, some, some blocking elements that, that will slow down the further adoption of technologies uh, in, in, in jurisdictions. But I don't believe there is a risk really going back because it, it's impossible. The, the, the world, it's not only... The use of technology in our correctional environment and our justice environment it's that has changed, but it's the entire world that has changed. Yeah, yeah. Pia or, or Matt, do you want to say anything on that about reverting back or has Stephen covered it? Any, Matt? Uh, I think he has, just on the last point that Stephen made, I think the advantage and disadvantage of us in criminal justice is that we're, we're not in this alone. Uh, these are societal forces at play. And the issue of, you know, balancing, does technology surplant what humans do or supplement it? Uh, those are bigger debates that we're just part of as well. Uh, but I think, and, and I'm probably from the old school, I wouldn't mind going back to the old way of doing business. But I agree. I, I think there, there's a pendulum. But I think basically the, the forces, if you look over even pre-COVID on how technology was influencing us, uh, the problems it presented, as well as the opportunities, I think, again, those things are just being magnified now. I don't think they're going away. 
right okay and Pia, you agree by the looks of that? Yeah, I agree. Of course, uh, pandemic uh, uh, brought economic challenges, and we will probably see them for some for some time still. But uh, in Finland, maybe there's more challenge uh, sometimes with the staff because we have quite a lot of uneducated staff uh, as prison officers, and and sometimes uh, advanced. Uh, uh, technology or ICT is maybe something they are a little bit suspicious uh, about. On the other hand, I think that everything that happens in the society is kind of mirrored in the corrections too. And regarding ICT, I think uh, still about f- five years ago, at least in Finland, we were behind the development of the rest of the, sci- the society. And thanks to pandemic, we are now more on the same level. With the with the rest of the society in the in the corrections too, so I think I hope this development will continue that we we are not uh, behind the development anymore. But just on that, Pia, you're you're reminding me that here in Ireland, uh, I'm involved in the very early stages of a project that is considering uh, ICT and the benefits that ICT can bring in relation to people in prison or on probation. And part of the view that is emerging there when, when, when the prison and the probation services did a, a small-scale survey of service users, they, they, you know, people in prison are particularly uh, feel that they have been left behind by technology so that they're very much excluded from the developments, even though you know, there have been innovations introduced here as well in relation to video uh, visits to, you know, with, with their families and so on. But they feel in the wider context that society has moved on or is moving on in relation to IT and that the longer somebody is in prison, they're being left further and further behind. Do you think there are possibilities to address that? that in, uh, by the sounds of it, you're doing it in Finland, but how yeah. do you do it and how, how can it be done? Uh, yeah, I think one of the purposes of our project was that um, uh, there's a lot of people that are digitally marginalized in the society due to various reasons. Inmates are, are one of the special groups where where there is a risk for this kind of marginalization and uh, it will mean problems in the society and they already have problems. So when they get free and they realize that ICT skills are necessary for any educational or vocational studies, uh, entering job markets, uh, they, they are in a handicap in that situation if we exactly. don't take care that uh, their education and also digital skills training uh, happens during their uh, sentence. And also it's a question of... Um, equal access to services. In Finland, it's really important that inmates would get the same access to services as other citizens. And basically, it means that you should be able to use digital services because that's the only channel to many outside services when you are when you are having a sentence in a closed prison, at least. And is, is that really achievable, Pia? You know, it's um, while the the principle of equal access is easy to set out, um, whether it's, especially in the prison context, 
the typical arguments I would be familiar with against or blocking uh, that type of development are either security or cost. And yeah. to what extent are you overcoming those in, in Finland? Yeah. Uh, when when these uh, solutions develop, I, I think also the cost effectiveness becomes more um, more evident. But then, of course, uh, in the Smart Prism for project, for example, we did a lot of work uh, to test and prove that the systems are secure, that the internet ac- access is uh, restricted, can be monitored, and it's not an automatic permission to use those services if you're an inmate. So we still have some procedures to mitigate the risks. And all this uh, work we do must be transparent, transparent to the staff who is this, who is anyway responsible for the inmates whether whether they use those services or or some other services, so um, the same the same kind of risks uh, exist anyway. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Okay, Matt or Stephen, do you want to respond to that that issue, that theme? Yeah, yeah I, oh, sorry, please go ahead. Go ahead, Matt. I, I was just going to say it's it's somewhat related. Um, someone in the chat mentioned that there's generational differences with the. Yeah. Uh, computer literacy and and I agree with that. The one thing that I'm concerned in a community corrections component is the impact of technology on jobs and what jobs will be available. Um, so when I was a probation officer 30 years ago, the jobs I help people get no longer exist. They're they're long gone. And what I think is interesting for the first time, and I don't want to sound paranoid, but it seems to me with robotics and artificial intelligence. I think there's going to be a lot of jobs, fields that are not going to be available in coming years. And I just read an article about the supply chain problems we're having and the solution to it is more automation, not more people, uh, not more jobs, more automation. And I recognize people need to work on those robotics and, and program things. But I'm thinking it's getting to the point that we have to start thinking both as the criminal justice system and society how are we going to deal with that reality that traditional jobs, and I'm not just talking blue collar jobs as we refer to them here in the US, but you know, radiologists, arguably artificial intelligence can be do a better job diagnosing diseases than doctors can. Accountants, lawyers, I have a legal background, but there's computer software now that helps you write wills and do all kinds of other things. I think it, it's not too early to start thinking about those kind of issues. And as a society, and particularly as criminal justice with vulnerable populations, how are we going to deal with that? Yeah, yeah. Steve? I, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Uh, so so you've talked, uh, Vivian and Pia, about the, the, the offender, so in prison or in community, but, but we have to think about the stuff, exactly what, what Matt said also, because I, I hear a lot and more since the pandemic, and it's not only in the criminal justice sector, but it's everywhere, uh, the problem with recruitment. Eh? So so there are so many open vacancies for security officers in prison uh, across across Europe. I know, eh? I, I've heard from, from several director generals complaining and and, and, and uh, looking into that. So 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 it's it's we have to do something with that. We have to find find a way in in, in uh, looking how technology can do the things that 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 technology can do and and using the human value for focusing more on what, what they are good at, what the human is good at. Uh, one example, I, I, I know that, that in Belgium, for the opening of a new prison after the summer, they, they, they are, are trying to recruit a new profile, um, a little bit less focused on security and administration, much more focused on, on working with the offender, more, more social work, like more, more rehabilitative work. So uh, uh, this, is, this is something that, that, that will change 
Yeah? So the profiles have to change. Uh, technology has the capacity for, for taking over things where, where we are not particularly good in uh, uh, so that we can focus on, on what uh, humans are good in. So I think it's a very, very valid point. And it's, it's also something, just a, another thing I, I learned um, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to visit the smart prison in Hong Kong. And the main driver there, for, for one of the main drivers there for, for introducing technology was to make that job for those people working in prison more attractive, more like the outside digital normal, just because they, yeah, they are young people who are used to work with device things. That so there are a lot of drivers who use technology, and I think we have to we have to look into how how we can uh, uh, use technology for the good, and and, and also kind of tackling or or, or helping uh, uh, organizations reduce that that that, that sort of stuff. Yeah, it, it it seems to me that so much of what we're talking about is a is a systemic issue, and we can't really afford to forget about the different parts of the system or the jigsaw. I, I just want to move back over to uh, one of the questions again in the chat. Uh, my good colleague Clement Oketch from Kenya uh, makes the point or asks the question, at some point probation practitioners were thinking that the practice was moving towards hands-off approaches to supervision even before the COVID pandemic. And is the emergence of ICT use accelerated by the pandemic going to be seen as a confirmation of hands-off situations? And how can ICT be used to leverage and not to limit contact with service users? And really that resonated with me. I was only talking to somebody the other day about how, for example, in Ireland, uh, probation officers have to be qualified social workers now. But people who have been studying for a master's in social work in Ireland over the last two years have had very limited, if not any, if, if any, opportunities, for example, to do home visits while they were undertaking practice placements. So those people have now emerged into the workforce. And uh, as Clement says, I, there's a perception that practices like home visiting in probation has been on the decline. And now if we have a situation where people have gone through training with little or no exposure to home visiting, and we have a situation where ICT has meant, as Matt and others have said, in the tele-intervention scenario, people are able to access whoever they need to access online. Is there a danger of ICT actually not making those types of situations potentially worse? And as Clement, Clement asks, how can ICT be used to leverage and not to limit contact with service users where it is necessary and appropriate. Anybody want to put up their hand on, on that one? <laughs> the, the, only thing, yeah. the only thing that strikes me, and it's a common theme that both Pia and Stephen had mentioned, is again, trying to keep things in proportion and in balance and where technology can help and where it can't. What I'm interested in is, can we get to the point where we look at the receptivity of the person under supervision in a community supervision context and the skill sets of the officer? Can there be suggestions made saying, hey, this, this is appropriate to handle over the phone or just do a video conference, but this kind of content should be dealt with face-to-face. -face. And I think if we can develop that over time, we become more sophisticated and we are better able to strike that balance. I don't think that responsivity tools exist yet or skill measurements on the officer side to help push at them saying, hey, these are the kind of issues that maybe you can do hands off. Um, we, we, we've done a much 
much better job in stratifying caseloads based on risk, criminogenic risk and needs. The responsivity in my mind hasn't been as strong. So I'm hoping that's some area that we can develop through research and through technology to better communicate to both the people in the supervision or in prison and the people working with them to figure out what lends itself to remote or electronic interactions versus what is really appropriate for in-person ones. Okay, really good point. And I want to come back to you on one aspect of that and something you mentioned earlier on that I think links into the point you've just made. But I do want to give Pia and Stephen a chance if they want to say anything on that general issue that Clement raises about leveraging the benefit of ICT and limiting the uh, the challenges that 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 may have been arising. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. Please go ahead, Pia. Uh, yeah, well, uh, first of all, the word balance was important, that you need to know where to use it and when not. And uh, also, besides uh, bringing ICT to the corrections, we have to remember that we are looking for more educated staff and staff with uh, good uh, work ethics so that they won't use ICT as an excuse to not do something, but they are still interested in the client and in the client work and uh, understand the value of uh, human contact and and especially like in, in probation. I haven't worked in probation, but I've understood that those home visits are for some uh, some of the clients, the most important ones, even though they might might seem like uh, just monitoring, but but they are really important uh, for them. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Pia. Stephen? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree that balance is, is, is very important. Maybe to add that this is a, a very collaborative thing to achieve, that finding that balance. It's, it's about the practitioner. It's about the training of the practitioner, showing the value of home visits and personal contact. And also something sometimes as, as being a pro, has been working as a probation officer, I know sometimes it's not valuable to have a home visit, but in the most cases, it's very valuable. So it's it's to learn about that, but it's also about the, the, the policymakers uh, the, the, to, to, to convince them and then to develop a national, international standard to set some boundaries and best practice, like, like there are already in Europe, I know, develop, uh, developed uh, some very valuable uh, things to, 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 to push this also uh, to avoid that, that it's just about uh, um, just uh, uh, cost-cutting uh, the, 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 to reduce those kind of things. And also, I think academical work, I think Matt, Matt uh, referred uh, uh, also already to, to, we have to get more knowledge about the impact of, of, of those, 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 those visits. And also with, with, with the new generation, if the, is the value of face-to-face -face context so different from, from, from having intensive uh, online communication, uh, that there has been in other sectors already a lot of interesting uh, research uh, done on that, which gives a nuanced uh, view on, on, on it's not always better. Uh, uh, it depends again on the context and the situation. So there is a lot of people and knowledge to, to work around this uh, to, to find that balance, I think. Okay, thanks, Stephen. Um, as I mentioned, I just want to go back to a point that Matt made in his last uh, comments, which linked to an earlier point that struck me. Uh, and it was the whole area, Matt, of the possibility for ICT to help us to match particular client needs with, for example, you know, uh, probation or parole officer skills. Uh, and then just recently, you mentioned the issue of the areas of risk and need profiling and prioritization has been higher, whereas responsivity 
issues have been a bit lower on the on the scale of attention. And it just brought me back in my mind to the old question about um, in general, but I think it's applicable here in terms of what we've been talking about in ICT developments. Is there a danger that we develop systems, uh, ICT-based systems, or more of them, that are very much influenced by particular majorities in terms of gender, culture, nationality, uh, educational attainment was mentioned, generational, you know, age difference. Um, and that, that uh, challenge is often made to correction services and the, the academics and researchers who develop, for example, risk, need and responsivity assessment tools. Is there a danger that we, 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 we might further reinforce those potential biases in how we continue to develop ICT? Or is, it, is there an opportunity there to balance out some of those gender, race, ethnic, ethnicity, educational aspects? I see, Matt, I, I think you're dying to come back in. <laughs> no, no, it, it's a great point. And I think there is a risk of that. Um, sometimes, and I think Stephen pointed this out, there could be sometimes an over-deference to technology. Well, the machine told me to do X, so I'm going to do X. No, you know, again, the decision's still yours. Hopefully, technology and research can help inform that decision because all those actuarial devices, which I'm a fan of, are fantastic in the aggregate. They break down at the individual case level. They're, they're again, designed to be guiding people's behavior, guiding decisions or informing decisions rather than dictating them. So I would never get to the point where um, recommendations about matching skill sets of an officer with the responsivity inclinations of a person under supervision, that those be viewed as handcuffs. Uh, they're going to have to experiment. And ideally, we as a system can learn from those decisions, including the variations from what was recommended. So I think there, the quick answer is yes, absolutely. There's a risk of it. There are safeguards that we could be taking to prevent that. Um, but I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think it's worth exploring to see if such tools can be developed and used. Okay, thanks, Matt. Stephen? Yeah, I agree with Matt. There is, there is a risk, uh, and I think there's have been already a lot of things written about risk and people working on to limit the, the, the risk of, for example, AI algorithms, uh, so, so creating more transparency, uh, understanding what, what the algorithm is doing. Uh, also, the artificial intelligence is based on data. So how good is the data? What is the quality of the data? Uh, the data is based on what we have always done. So how far can, can AI be helping is doing better? Because if, we, for example, very in general, say, okay, if you look at the rates all across the globe, they are really much too high, in my opinion, to say that we have good criminal justice systems. So if we base AI systems based on all the data coming from those <coughs> systems, I don't see that AI can help us doing better. It's maybe very simplistic reasoning that we have to be modest what AI can do. Uh, we have to be careful. Uh, there is a lot of po uh, possibilities in AI. It's, uh, it's continuously evolving, but we have to take in mind that, that there is a lot of steps to take and a lot of quality uh, assurance work to do before we really say and, and, and start trusting in AI like we trust the Google Maps algorithm to drive us from A to B. Okay, thanks, Stephen. Pia, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I, I, I agree with Matt and Stephen, and uh, I think we again come to the question, how do we use uh, technology, ICT, artificial intelligence? Somehow I think that, uh, do we think there is a risk that our 
staff becomes somehow intellectually lazy if uh, if AI or something is doing uh, the job for them. Uh, so they still should be able to assess, analyze risks and needs and responsivity themselves too. Uh, and this AI is just helping them, but there might be some kind of a risk that um, uh, that so, some something or somebody else determines things, and we start to think that um, we don't have to get so much involved. But um, of course, there's been all kinds of assessment tools uh, even before AI, and uh, we have become uh, accustomed. To use them in the right way. For example, in psychology, there is my field. There's a lot of psychological tests and uh, testing tools. And uh, even though there are a lot of tests, every psychologist knows that her own expertise uh, is even <laughs> is still the most important uh, tool you have. Even though you can use the tests and even automatically uh, put the re- uh, re- um, points and records in the test results, but it doesn't take away your expertise as a psychologist when analyzing or testing people. Okay, so like a lot of the challenges we face, not everything is a new challenge. Some of them have been, have <laughs> yeah. some if not all of them have been there before. And maybe as we mentioned earlier on, ICT or developments in ICT may just accelerate or expose those challenges somewhat more. I'm I'm going to go to another question uh, comment in the chat box is um, that my concern that we risk to go very fast to an unbalanced landscape in corrections, prisons and probation with countries that will go fast forward as front runners and a lot of others who will unfortunately not be able to follow Uh, EU, ICPA, EU, Council of Europe environment must really put this on the policy agenda. Another issue will be the affordability for offenders. Some countries will not charge, others will do. So there's a number of points there. I think the the first one is that issue about some countries going very fast in a certain direction. I guess part of the implication is there with policy transfer, uh, sometimes where countries are in whatever area of development are front runners, others can look to to those front runners and then feel we have to follow because that looks like a good uh, development for whatever reason so how can we how can we militate against that and how can we ensure as the question says that these issues uh, are put on the policy agenda and also the issue of affordability um Pia, I'll just go to you first, maybe this time. Do you want to have a, or have you any thoughts on any of those uh, questions? I'm conscious that you are in various aspects of your work dealing in your own country in Finland, but also at an international level. So mm. do you recognize what's been put forward here? Yeah, I understand. And uh, the same was the situation in Finland when we started the project that we knew there are already more advanced ICT solutions and smart prisons in other countries. And we were able to see the benefits and we wanted to invest uh, in having uh, some of some of those benefits in our systems too. And I and I think we are uh, we are starting to see the results and I'm very happy with it. And 
all all these kind of uh, platforms where you can share knowledge and experiences are very valuable. Uh, so I think uh, we can do a lot to help other countries follow follow the path and share our knowledge and experiences. So this is what collaboration is 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 about, and I I think. Uh, all all new new ideas are implemented little by little so always there are the ones that are first and then the rest follows and 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 finally it has gone gone to all all areas all levels of uh, of organization and all countries so okay stephen yeah. Anita, yeah, so, I, sorry thank you pia Yes, yes, I, I, um, I, I agree, and, and, and with the points that 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 were made in the in the in the, in the chat, uh, it's about the importance of of organizations, international organizations, NGOs, and so on. They they, they have a very valuable uh, work to do. Eh? So so I think uh, I can mainly talk about about EU at first time. I think there is still a lot of improvements on that level to share. Uh, to develop knowledge uh, uh, based on multiple jurisdictions. Uh, being in the role as an uh, ICT manager, I, I have been struggling at that time, and uh, here are a lot of countries struggling with building business cases. So, so have really not only evidence based on that, that that use of technology, for example, is, is good for the offender, but also make a financial picture of what is the impact of, of we doing good for the offender, like and 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 and, and yeah, make it quantitative that that we can show to policymakers. So, if you give people more access to education and you invest in this kind of technology, for example, it, it, it on the long term, on the government, in a society, it, it, it will be beneficial, for example. So there's a lot of, of, of material that can, can be done. I, I, I agree that there will also always be, be, be uh, early adopters, uh, front runners, early adopters and people who follow. But I think international collaboration is really valuable. And, and, and we could, we could uh, I think this, this network, for example, is part of it. But uh, we, we can um, uh, make this even stronger in the future. Okay, thanks, Stephen. Just before I invite Matt to come in on this question, I'm going to open things up uh, a bit more to the floor and invite direct uh, contributions from, uh, we, we have 19 people on the, on the forum at the moment. So... But and just in saying that, if people could use the raise a hand function, I'll try and keep an eye on who has a hand raised. If, if you can't use the raise a hand function, use a physical raise a hand, obviously, with your, with your camera switched on. Um, and um, people in general uh, on the call might keep an eye as well on the ongoing questions and comments arising on the chat if anybody wants to uh, respond to those. So, Matt, I'll, I'll just give you an opportunity to respond to the specific Issue sure. we've been discussing. I think uh, Pia Stevens' points are very well taken. And I just want to point out too that there is always going to be front runners, and that's not a bad thing. Sometimes being the first person in the pool is not the greatest thing. Um, and having been a middle child, I saw advantages from my older brother doing lunatic things and me learning almost to Pia's point that you get the advantage of those lessons. Somebody has to be the front runner, and somebody has to take the risk, and somebody has to take the beating to some degree to learn those lessons. But the fact that they can be shared, as both P and Stephen pointed out, that's what really matters. So I agree that it may not be equal. The whole system may not move uniformly in one direction, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay, thanks, Matt. Just before I, I, I open things up, I just see two tantalizing questions there on the on the chat, and I just want to I, I don't want to lose them. 
Um, so uh, I'm 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 just going to you know put those to uh, Stephen, Matt, and Pia. Um, just to say as well, we've we've just hit the hour mark. So at this stage, we're kind of in the zone where we can continue with the conversation uh, for as long as it's fruitful. And at the same time, if we if we uh, come to a stage where we seem to have exhausted the the available or the energized conversation, we we you know we can wind things up as well. I and at that stage, I would like to think, and people can just have this in their mind. Um, before we finish as such, I, I would like to have something for the uh, INCJ, the International Network on Criminal Justice, to be able to take away if there are any particular points that, that people want to emphasize. And some of those have just been made by Pia, Stephen and Matt in the context of international collaboration and so on. But anyway, I, I might just go to Mike McGuire and John Scott's comments uh, and questions and put the two of them to our three panellists uh, if they want to respond. And then, as I say, I'll open things up more generally to the floor. So Mike McGuire says regarding remote versus face-to-face criminal justice interactions, is it not important to give rights of choice to service users? An example is parole interviews, where prisoners are interviewed by a parole board member and are able to make an argument about why they are ready for release. Some prisoners may be happy or indeed prefer to do this remotely, while others may find internet contact intimidating, feel unsure of the rules of which they speak, find it difficult, which they can speak, find it difficult to pick up nonverbal cues, etc. Is not the answer to give them a free choice of internet or face to face, and the same with family visits to prison too. And it, it strikes me in reading Mike's question, uh, it had crossed my mind earlier as a general question, uh, which is. Are the benefits from ICT sometimes leaning towards the organizational benefits? You know, is there a, a saving, an efficiency, a benefit for the organization, what, whichever organization that is? And do we sufficiently incorporate the, the needs and, and the views of the service users? So, so that's one question. And then John Scott asks a very specific one. Do you think prison rules and probation rules at the Council of Europe level need to be updated to take into account changes in ICT and artificial technology. So, um, Matt, you might kick off with uh, responding to any of those uh, issues. Yeah, no, they're, they're both, uh, I'm not as familiar, obviously, with the European rules, but the they're both great points. Um, I think in my mind, I mentioned receptivity before, and I think people's preferences, especially if they can articulate why they have those preferences, should be part of that equation. Um, Again, maybe in some case instances, technology is not the right thing. Sometimes it could be just simply a matter of getting people more comfortable with the technology. For example, when I, I have a Zoom call with my mom, it's, uh, you know, the camera's on her forehead the entire time, you know, and it's just a matter of training. And then as she got more comfortable with it, she's now contacting the grandkids, you know, using the technology. So there, if it's just if you find out not only people's preferences, but maybe go the extra step, you find out why they feel that way. And there's also, it was raised in the context, I think, of what due process that people are entitled to. If they feel that they're talking to a machine and their fate is decided by a machine, I think we as humans naturally rebel against that. And I think that's that's partly what um, the question goes to. And I agree with that. So those are definitely parts of the equation that have to be visited. 
Okay, thanks, Matt. Stephen, do you want to come in on either of those? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the first point is, is giving giving the choice. It's it's very important, uh, and and it's not about giving uh, ex offenders the choice to 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 choose between the physical or, or 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 virtual contact. But it's it's technology has a lot of capabilities to enable them to make more choices themselves, also in prison situations. Uh, I, I have been working in the, in, in the past on some projects, for example, allowing uh, uh, using technology to allow an inmate to open his cell door instead of waiting until the officer knocks on the door, for example. Eh? So making that decision to get up and go to his work and things like I, I would say that, in fact, the, the reason that, that people come into the criminal justice system is, is often because they have, have made bad decisions. Uh, and then we lock them up and we take away all the, almost all the capabilities of them to take decisions for really simple things. So I, I strongly believe that technology can play a huge role in enabling them to learn to take decisions again. And a last point also, it's not only about the use of technology, but it's also, I, I have seen some very interesting work in, in, uh, here in the UK uh, on, on uh, uh, apply uh, for, for them to help to even design the technology and the solutions. For example, uh, it, it's... We, in ICT, we always talk about user experience, UX, you know, with very, very fancy terms, and we have to know our customers. We don't do that enough in, in, in the prison context, but why not design together with them the services they want to have? So there are a couple of things related to, to, to that very uh, important remark, I think, from, from, from Mike, uh, that, that it's important to ask them their advice and to give them possibilities. And, and I am convinced that uh, decisions, um, that technology can help improve their, their, their possibilities to, to, to make decisions and to be involved more. Okay, thanks, Stephen. Pia? Yes, uh, I agree. It's, it's always important to ask your client what is best for him, for him or her. So, of course, this is, is the same thing here. In Finland, uh, healthcare services are very precise about this. So, if the client asks for a face-to-face -face contact, uh, you must able, enable it. So telehealth is only an option, but, uh, but they are really precise about it that patients have the right for face-to-face -face doctor consultation and nurse consultation. And this telehealth is option when there is, for example, a lot of distance or a lot of costs in that case for the patient to come for, for, for some, some kind of uh, uh, routine procedure that could be done, done online too. And I think once uh, this development goes further and further, uh, of course, for example, the work I'm doing in the Council of Europe, they said that always when they release recommendations about something, they are already uh, a bit outdated at that point because the development goes uh, so fast, especially with, with ICT. And next one is going to be artificial intelligence recommendations that will be given to the corrections too by, by Council of Europe. So it's a challenge that uh, we uh, monitor the development and we, we are conscious about uh, to what direction it's going and, and if there's a need for uh, uh, new recommendations, new policies, uh, new ethical policies, then we should be uh, ready to uh, do them as, as the time uh, goes and the development goes further. So, yeah. Great. Thanks very much, Pia. Okay, I'm I'm going to open things up for wider, more free-flowing discussion. Even though the 
Uh, I do want to acknowledge that people have been very good and very uh, on the ball, if I can use that phrase, in terms of the comments and questions that you've put in the chat box. So I, I'd like to invite uh, our, all our participants to switch on their cameras. And then if people have a, have a question or a comment that they want to make in the remaining time, um, if you signal either virtually or physically by showing your hand and uh, I'll, I'll ask people to come in then. So if you, first of all, if you want to turn on your cameras, I, I, and I'm conscious that some people are sometimes using devices where they can't, uh, access a camera or whatever. But if you can, please do put on your your camera. Great to see some familiar and some new new faces. So does anybody, just while, while other people are uh, allowing us to access their backgrounds and their, their features, uh, anybody want to come in with a comment or a question in real time, live, so to speak? There were some people made comments and I didn't get to them. Uh, I, I generally tended to focus in the chat on where people had a, had a question as such. And some people were just uh, not just, but they were specifically commenting or giving feedback on a particular point that, that had been made. Jerry, were you, you were leaning forward there, Jerry McNally, as if you were going to, yeah, I see you switching it on now. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I now feel pressurized into actually saying so. <laughs> I, I, in fact, I missed most of your earlier presentation because I was wrestling unsuccessfully with the IT system and with Eventbrite to actually manage to get in. So uh -huh. I think it's, I think, uh, one of the bigger issues that's going to be is about data literacy and uh, not uh, IT literacy, because I think it's very, there's one thing for the people at the front who are understanding what they're doing to drive um, an IT culture. The problem is that if it's who's excluded and how do you actually bring the excluded on board and how do you actually manage to make it meaningful communication? Because again, and I think this would be a familiar, anybody who hears me talking about the human element in probation is one of the most critical and key. And I think IT can act as a support but I'm not sure that it can actually substitute for. And I think that's that's the challenge. How do we get the maximum benefit from it without actually losing? And I think we have to look at that balance. It's the Kui Bono question, who benefits, but also who loses? Because sometimes we can become a little bit seduced by technology. And I think I put my hand up as one of those people who likes the technology. But I think I'm increasingly asking the question is, what are we losing at the same time? Thanks very much for that, Jerry. I noticed uh, one of the other participants, whoever's behind iPad Van Hans, made a, a, a related point. It's a, it's a bit of a different point where uh, they said, I'm not so sure that people born after 2000, whether inmates and offenders, are so digitally marginalized. They all have an iPhone outside. They are really smarter than we think. So there may be two sides to what you're saying, Jerry, in the sense that there may be a marginalization, which other people have referenced earlier on. And at the same time, there may be a subgroup of the population, if, you, if, if I can put it that way, who are not as marginalized as we may sometimes think. Does the questioner or commenter uh, who made that point want to come in or does any of the panelists or anyone else want to, want to, want to comment on that, that issue? I don't know if this helps, but one of my hopes as technology goes along to Jerry's point, um, that it will become so sophisticated that it will be easy to use. 
I'm hoping that technology becomes more intuitive, more, I'm even, you know, my own experience trying to hook up the TV set, you know, over the years, it's progressively, it's still not easy, but it's progressively getting better. My hope moving forward with that gap, and I think there's a generational component, but also it's exposure. Um, And if you don't have that exposure, you're in a deficit, I agree. But I'm hoping moving forward that ironically, technology can be part of that solution of a problem that was created by technology. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else want to come in with a comment or question? Virtual or physical hand, if you want to, and we can. Yeah, Cameron. Hi, thanks so much. It's been very interesting. I'm Cameron. I'm from a company called Socrates Software, which is a tablet company in the UK, and we provide Intel tablets with various different content and services on those. And I was just wondering about your views on access to the internet in prison. And obviously, various different jurisdictions have different levels of access that's allowed often none, usually none. But I was just wondering what your thoughts are on whether it's beneficial to have unrestricted access or whether a certain level of restricted access is useful for some people or not so much for others. Yeah, any thoughts on the ethics and also usefulness of that? Anyone, Stephen? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, and and this 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 conversation is ongoing uh, everywhere in the world, and it's full of fear, uh, fear of the internet. For, first of all, it, it's difficult to define the internet and how we give access to what exactly. Eh? It's full of content and videos and, and interactive things and non-interactive things and information things like that. So we have first of all nuance. Uh, uh, I think what Pia mentioned earlier in in Finland that they have the right uh, to have access to information. And if that information is only uh, uh, available digitally, I think it, it's normal that, that it's, it's, it's becoming a right. Eh? It's, it's becoming or is already a right to, to have access to the information uh, if needed. So uh, I, I think from, from the internet, we have to get a little bit away from the fear. The second thing is we have, again, have to look at the context. It's not a black and white dis- discussion. Uh, I, I always uh, advise my customers to look at the context, at the profile of the image, make uh, the, the, the thing to deliver meaningful. For example, uh, um, giving uh, an inmate access to, to let me say, uh, a website to, to search for, 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 for housing is really meaningful uh, for people who are preparing for reentry, but maybe not at day one of a 20-year life sentence. Eh? So, so. We, we, ha- we have to look much more in detail in the context. So it's not, it's a question that you ask that I think it's impossible to, to quickly answer. It's about the context. I think it's very important that we, we take away that fear, that we also add to this, not only the physical IT security, uh, but also the dynamic security, make it meaningful and uh, make it part of a conversation of a re-entry plan, of an educational plan, things like that will we'll help you. And, and, and that way, uh, I'm convinced, and I think there are already some good examples, that it's possible to give access to the internet for a lot of people uh, in prison uh, and, and a really broad access, rather than only one or two websites. Anybody? Yeah, Pia? Yeah, yeah I, I agree, because uh, I think this is uh, um, especially a good question, because in Finland, it's already, I could say, pretty normal that prisoners can use internet because uh, it's not technically very difficult to make a restricted, whitelisted internet. 
uh, connection that we use in closed prisons. And we also have our own procedure, how we analyze to whom we give the internet permission. But it's also easier in Finland because the right to use digital services is in our Imprisonment and Remand Imprisonment Act. So law is on our side or on the inmates side that with good grounds for educational or social or healthcare purposes or staying in contact with your relatives, you you have the right to use digital services, even email and and video calls and restric- restricted internet contact for those purposes. So we have quite good situation, I, I now understand, compared to many other countries who are much more uh, cautious about this issue. But uh, it's it's possible to organize in a way that minimizes risks, I think. Yeah, just building on what Pia just said, and I think Cameron, I, I appreciate what you're doing. I think in the U.S. and as a former administrator, sometimes it's a lot easier to have broad rules, just no internet access because of security concerns. Uh, you don't want people having contact with former victims or former gang members. So they usually cite that because one, it's easier. Two, on the surface, it looks fairer because it applies to everyone. But what I personally like, which I think we've lost here in the U.S is incentivizing certain behaviors. And in the institution, if you could earn your way by doing the right thing to get privileges, like expanded internet access, um, and, and maybe you know some of it would just be needed, you're saying for re-entry, Stephen. But the, the idea in my mind that that internet access could be one of yet another series of incentives that could be created for people in institutions or even either outside it. And we have some restrictions on internet use Uh, on probation here in the system in the states, for example, people who have used computers to commit their offenses, uh, child porn offenders. Um, there may be restrictions either they can't use it, that's very limited, but usually there's a monitoring component. So in my mind, I, I think a broad-based rule uh, is probably inappropriate. And going back to Pia and Stephen, it could actually be helpful, but I would like to see it part of an incentivized system to really help people make the right decisions, learn to make the right decisions that was mentioned before and build up the total freedom again. Yeah, to some extent, Matt, I, I, you, you remind me of the point uh, that I remember discussing on a number of occasions in relation to prison visits. And some systems operate that the basic uh, available regime is the most restrictive, and some people operate on the basis that the starting point is the least restrictive. Yeah. So that you, you, know, you start with the least restrictive, and then you might lose that privilege if you do something wrong, versus... You have to prove yourself first, having started at the most restrictive. So it's really a question, I think, of thinking through the underlying approach to what we're doing in terms of security and rehabilitation and so on. Excellent. Yeah. Lewis, you, you have a hand up. I do. Thank you. Um, sorry. A really interesting um, conversation you guys are having. And it's a shame I joined an hour late, but I wasn't down to technical issues that uh, Jerry was having. It was just uh, another meeting overrunning. So um, my, my my point, I've been fortunate uh, enough to visit every prison in England and Wales, um, part of a reducing reoffending directorate um, service they offered. And one thing I've realised, and, and th- this is a big problem within the prisons in England and Wales, is every director delivering a service has their own agenda and nowhere do those agendas align. Um, and, I, and I think that's half the 
half the battle is them all coming together. Every, I don't know, seven directorates are in the UK prisons, for instance, all sitting in one room saying, actually, we want a service that's going to deliver all of Lewis's drug interventions, all of Lewis's learning, all of Lewis's video, Lewis's video calls to home. That that just seems impossible. And, you know, I've been around, can we just look a lot of people for a long time? And it seems that that's a big challenge, especially in the UK. Very interesting point, Lewis. Any any of the panelists or anyone else want to come in on that? I, I know it's a problem in the US as well, um, sometimes for geographic reasons. Um, but I also think that could be a blessing as well, that if we're transparent enough that we're monitoring results and experiences, the fact that different people are attacking the same problem differently can be a learning opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree. Sometimes it's it's frustrating. It seems unfair. But if we could tap into that learning experience, I think, you know, it's the whole theory about evidence-based practices and using empirical data to make decisions. If we have that transparency, that variation could be a good thing. Okay. Anybody else on that point? No. I do want to ask the question, and I I mentioned this earlier, uh, I think, and I asked that people might have it in the back of their minds, but... In the context of the International Network on Criminal Justice, which is where this event comes out of, and its particular area of focus on ICT and the implications for corrections, prisons, probation, and so on. Has anyone any thoughts or views uh, in relation to what we can be doing? And when I say we, I mean it in a a, a wide sense. I mean the people here at, at this event today, the uh, other people who may not be here today but may have an interest in this area. Uh, I mean, we as in INCJ, as a, as a network, um, are there areas in terms of research or developing collaboration and networking? Um, and that point was made earlier in relation to the point about following international uh, leaders, international forerunners, has anybody any particular thoughts or experience or ideas in relation to what any collection of us who are interested in this area can do to build on what we're talking about today? Well, at least um, I have the experience in Finland that after we uh, implemented the smart prison system, we've got a lot of um, uh, in interest from abroad, asking how how we did that si- that system, what kind of services we have in it. So this um, idea of um, of the possibility of consulting other people is is important, and I'm more than happy to share and tell people uh, how how we have done it here, and how it has been done in in other countries, and how we can learn from each uh, other. So uh, I I uh, I've liked a lot uh, this role as as uh, giving giving other people the opportunity to learn from our project too. So I I think these kind of events and uh, are very important. And of course, uh, there's organizations uh, uh, like ICPA and Europris and uh, uh, CEP. Um, that um, are spreading the knowledge and information. Uh, and I think it's very valuable work. And I think also in many countries, NGOs uh, have uh, the possibility to provide uh, 
service, digital services and um, and from other uh, areas, uh, at least in Finland, we've also learned from uh, other governmental offices how they have implemented their systems. Like, for example, how in Finland uh, schools or hospitals have arranged their digital client systems. So there's opportunities to learn, okay. learn a lot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thanks, Pia. I'm I'm going to single out Jerry um, mm. for a, for a number of reasons, as Pia has mentioned. Um, uh, Jerry, in terms of the CEP, um, and also the the project that I just briefly mentioned earlier on, that's developing in Ireland in relation to prisons, probation, and ICT. Jerry, do you have any thoughts regarding what platforms or fora fora like today's? Uh, coming together uh, can do can should take away in terms of collaboration, developing research opportunities in this particular space about ICT and corrections. Yeah, and I was coming off mute there for, because I was coming in to agree with Pia about the. There's a number of different fora that can do things like share practical experience, past experience, knowledge testing research projects and I know the Council of Europe is looking at some of the principles and ethics but I do think there needs to be a much more high level discussion group about the purposefulness, the ethics and the practicality of the IT because it's one thing to have a tool, it's another thing to use it appropriately and for the benefit of all and I think it's that um, high level thinking I think that ICJ or their, this group can possibly do because it's about teasing out the naughty problems the ethics the principles the underpinning what's the right thing to do what's the wrong thing to do what uh, what are the consequences it's about doing the thinking out bits and I do think having a group of people who are prepared to wrestle with naughty problems is a very good idea because I think we can all talk about the technologies and we can all talk about how they work for us. I think that was probably an issue for another forum, but it's more to, if we can, if this group could focus on the naughty principal issues, the ethics for, 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 for a word, I think it, it would be a good purpose to do. And I see John Scott nodding which, because, uh, because I know, for example, CEP has the uh, Electronic Monitoring and Technology Conference, which we just held in Helsinki, and that's moving away from, it's not, it's still doing electronic monitoring, but it's looking much more at where, how far do you go with artificial intelligence? How do you go with it? And I think that that's, there's a direction of travel there, but it can always be supported. And I think the more people that are thinking about the why rather than just the how, <laughs> I think helps. Okay, thanks very much. That's that's very useful, Jerry. Um, and I'll just take this opportunity. And if, if somebody else wants to come in on this point, that'd be great. But just while I think of it, uh, you'll see in the chat area that Rob Watson has reminded us that we do have a discussion email that we can use to continue our conversations uh, as well. And he has put the link in there to that um, email network or list. It's a JISC mail list. So if people have uh ideas or thoughts or suggestions or questions that they want to follow up, they can link in through there. And also just to remind people, as Rob has in the chat, that we will also post this conversation, this afternoon's conversation to the INC website as a video and a podcast so that people 
uh, here today can listen to it again or you can share it with others and other people can access it as well. We're really interested in developing, as I said at the outset, the conversation, the dialogue, as Rob Watson said, that would be not just today, but into the future would be deliberative and developmental. And uh, John Scott is waving frantically. John, come in. Not that frantic, Vivian. Hi, everybody. Um, I like the challenge from Jerry about ethics and principles and standards. And I think that's a challenge for both practitioners and for academics. And what I wondered whether another perspective might well be that we haven't put on the table the client perspective, the user perspective. Um, we've talked about the danger of this being uh, led by a managerial imperative to save money or for organizational information. But I think there's a vast untapped uh, resource, which is the client perspective and getting feedback from the users. So that would be, uh, from my point of view, a very important dimension. And that would be part of the knotty uh, problems or perspective, which would, I think, be very valuable because the better you capture the client's voice, I think the better the service. Yeah, good point, John. And I see that links with a, a point that Clement Oketch has made as well, that there are two faces to ICT use in corrections, how it has been applied to re-engineer management processes. That's possibly the managerial aspect of what John Scott has just been talking about and how it has been applied to service users. And I think the two uh, need not be applied, um, sorry, need not go, need not necessarily go in tandem, but should be applied to improve rather limit rather than limit issues uh, such as rights uh, and the issue of legislation may need to be considered as well. Um, anybody else want to come in on, on that point? Or any points, Stephen? You have your hand up. Yeah, just yeah, first of all, I, I I'm sorry that I have to I have to go in a couple of minutes because otherwise I will be locked in this building. Uh, but anyway, uh, I I agree that that it's a very valid point, and and I have been doing some work. Maybe some of you have read it uh, with with Dr. Victoria Knight on ethical principles. Uh, uh, oh, also, yeah. I think, and uh, we already talked a little bit about the importance of of including the the, the end user in this is is is, uh, is very important, and there's a lot of things to do on that. So I agree with with both Jerry and 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 then also John that there are two valid points that could be very. Uh, interesting to work on in, in this kind of forums and also in working groups. Okay, um, and, and, I, and I take on board your point, Stephen, that you need to leave, and I see other people on the chat are making the same point. So my view in these situations is rather than let things just fizzle out as people <laughs> drift away, um, and I see Yosef uh, Kasatlo Stima said a good opportunity to share the information about ICT and establish some common rules and engagements can be the 27th Council of Europe Conference of Directors of Prison and Probation Service. Now, there's a practical um, suggestion for the theme for that conference. Anyway, I was just making the point that rather than let things fizzle out and people just drift away, and then I think sometimes when people have to leave because of their time issues, uh, they end up feeling that maybe I missed something important that happened after I left. So I think it's probably better that we try and wind up now or uh, that we do wind up now. We've been here for, for an hour and a half, and I think that's been um, probably as much uh, deliberative dialogue um, 
that uh, we can necessarily take in one afternoon. Before I forget any more uh, or any uh, any further, um, I do also want to thank uh, Sarah Sarah Chucci, um, who's here with us. You haven't seen her, but she is here, and she was. Sarah has been very much to the fore uh, with Rob Watson, Rob Watson, who you can see and uh, heard from earlier on uh, in setting up this event. And really, um, I would add, Sarah, you're, you're very welcome. And it's great uh, to know that you have been here. And I personally have found the input from Sarah and Rob Watson and John Scott and a whole lot of other people who are in INCJ, uh, not necessarily here today, who are very supportive of all of the work that INCJ uh, does and specifically, I'm mentioning uh, all of that in the context of today's event. Um, I do want to thank again uh, Pia Pulaka, Matt Rowland, and Stephen Van der Steen. Fantastic contributions. I really can't emphasize enough. Yes, yeah, as, as John Scott says, a virtual and a real round of applause uh, there. And I also really want to want to take the opportunity to thank all of you who have participated in today's event. Uh, I think the the numbers uh, and the contributions from everybody have have been really great and have enabled that uh, deliberative dialogue uh, to be really useful. I, I I'm finally getting to see Clement. I haven't seen him in a while. Um, I'm presuming you're you're in Kenya at the moment, Clement. Clement, and it's absolutely fantastic uh, to see you. And as was mentioned at the start of this event, while we all Probably, I certainly do welcome the possibility now to return to in-person events. Uh, as Matt said uh, specifically earlier on, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be having this event today if it wasn't for the possibilities provided for uh, or provided by uh, ICT and and you know to be able to reconnect again in ways that we couldn't with uh, Clement and everybody else online. John, uh, as a senior INCJ. Uh, operative, do you want to say anything before we close? Well, I've just put it on uh, on the chat line. Uh, brilliant facilitating and chairing, Vivian. I'm sure everybody would like to say thanks to you. And um, we'll be having more uh, discursive, exploratory sessions like this. And brilliant to see everybody. Keep cheerful and uh, keep well. Okay, thanks very much, John, and thank you all. Uh, enjoy the rest of your evening or morning or whatever, whatever part <laughs> of the day you're facing into. Okay, thanks very much, everybody. All the best. Thank you. Bye, bye. bye. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to the INCJ podcast, conversations about international criminal justice. To find out more, go to our website at criminaljusticenetwork.net or follow us on Twitter at INTCJ Network.